23rd Psalm is the probably the favorite of all. There are wonderful memories um, that we all have of the 23rd Psalm. Probably it was uh, something you memorized, had to memorize in school. I mean, back when Moses was an RA and I was in, <laughs> in, 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 uh, in elementary school, we had to memorize the 23rd Psalm, say it in class, and uh, no longer is that true. Um, so we're going to look at it. You have it open here on your, uh, on your lap. And a man came into the office of Wayne DeHoney, uh, who was pastor at that time of the uh, Walnut Street Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, filled with grief and despair. His wife had died and left him with two small children to raise. He was feeling some insecurity about his job. And he was having some health problems of his own. And he said to Dr. DeHoney, for the first time in my life, I'm really afraid. He said, I'm really, really scared to death. What's going to happen to me? And what's going to happen to my children if something happens to me? And so Dr. DeHoney said, I want to give you a dose, a prescription. You take five doses of this every day for 30 days. Don't take them all at once, just at intervals during the day, you take a dose of this prescription. It wasn't a pill, wasn't something in a bottle, it was the 23rd Psalm. I want you to read it carefully and slowly five times a day. The guy immediately protested. He said, I already know the 23rd Psalm. I can memorize, I've memorized it, I can quote it. He said, I know you probably can quote the 23rd Psalm. Most of us can. What I want you to do is read it, not quote it. And I want you to let the words saturate your mind because it'll give you, it is a pattern of life and it'll give you a new way of thinking. It will give you a new way of, of uh, living. It'll give you new thoughts. About a month later, he saw the man and asked him, how's it going? And he said, everything is much, much better. I liked the medicine you prescribed. Now, with the 23rd Psalm in your hand, well, let's read it together. Now, if you've got a New American Standard, you can read it in unison with me. If you haven't got a New American Standard, you ought to be ashamed <laughs> of yourself. Just kidding. All right, we'll read it slowly. You follow with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Are you, I can't hear you. You are reading. You American Standard. Here we go. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I want to stay with my manuscript and do the best I can with this magnificent psalm. We actually do not know how old David was when he wrote this. I'm sorry to to tell you that maybe he did not write it as a young boy sitting out on a hillside. That sounds a lot more romantic. He may not have written it when he was a little boy tending sheep on the hillside. He may have written it much later in his life as he reflected back upon this relationship he had with God and what he had experienced. But he sets out in four great words, in tremendous, four tremendous ideas, his faith. The first word, the first one is, the Lord. I start my faith by declaring the Lord. Some years ago, a man wrote a book entitled, Ideas Have Legs. The thesis of the book is that men do not rule the world, ideas rule the world. You can bayonet bayonet a man coming over a hill. You cannot bayonet an idea. You can put a, a man in prison, but you can't imprison a dream or an idea. And so in our attempts to change the regions that exist around us and the changes that occur, we try to imprison people and strengthen our strength on the battlefield only to find that ideas have broken out of prison and have overrun the battle lines. I was reading an interesting um, opinion not long ago of how Communism has failed in the world, and the opinion was that when people begin to see by modern technology, with modern technology, the ideals of freedom in the world, and they begin to watch on television people living in freedom, they could no longer be in chains, and they could no longer be behind walls, and so the walls of communism came tumbling down. Ideas, not men, rule the world. Now, what are the great ideals of civilization that have changed it? Primitive man began to conceive the idea of a wheel and invented it and changed the world. A man by the name of Gutenberg had the idea of a movable type, and thus we have the printed press, printing press. Scientific advancement ushered in the Renaissance development in the practical sciences, the Industrial Revolution, and the present 20th century. I suppose the greatest, most revolutionary idea was the idea of nuclear fission. And Albert Einstein sat in a rocking chair with a pipe in his hand and by sheer meditation developed the theory of relativity. Then came the development of the atomic bomb and the space age. Tremendous great ideas, and all of them had a part in the shaping of the destiny of man. But the greatest concept of man is the idea of God. That something, someone outside and beyond himself, beyond touching and feeling and beyond hearing is God. The greatest idea that has influenced and shaped the mind of men in every generation and in every culture, this idea of God has 
excited the most inf- the greatest influence on the destinies of man's life, his morals, his way of government, his society. It is the most revolutionary, the most tremendous idea that has ever crossed the mind of man. So David starts with the idea of God, that there is a being, a person, a personality, a force, a mind, a power, whatever you call it, God the Lord. And then alongside that, he throws a second idea, the Lord is. I heard about the black preacher who was assigned the topic, God is love. And he got up to speak to this huge congregation and said, my topic is God is love. Now anybody who has any sense at all knows that nobody could in one sermon declare all there is to know about God. And anybody who has any brains at all, he said, knows that you couldn't exhaust the subject of love in one sermon. So I have chosen to speak on is. So the, the psalmist froze alongside the word is. It denotes the existence or the being of God. He exists. Now, the philosopher might say that God is just the product of man's speculation, that man reasons himself to God, that by logic man comes to the conclusion that there is a God, but God is the product of man's imagination and his logic. Or the psychologist might say, the idea of God is the extension of man's self-realization, man's self-identity. He projects himself and psychologically he thinks there is a God. But David said, this is no philosophical idea of my imagination and this is no extension of myself. The reality is God exists. God is real. He is more real than this physical existence. Consider his handiwork, he said, in the stars. His master craftsmanship in my body, his work in life, God exists. This bold declaration of faith, there is a God, is a bold one. He is above us and he is beyond us. He is in us and through us. He intervenes in the affairs of man. He's supernatural. And I believe that there is a great hunger today in this era of scientific advancement. Explorations of space have become so commonplace that they are no longer front-page stories. But I discern a hunger in the human heart for the supernatural, for the assurance of the presence and the reality of God. Men want to know that God is and that God is real. And their questing and their searching can account for the growth of conservative churches, the yearning for biblical-based preaching, a belief of the supernatural influence in the affairs of man. Men want to know that there's more to life than what we have. 
There is a hungry, hearty generation crying for its strong affirmation that God exists and that He's real. He is a personality, a power, a force. He is present in this room. David moves on to a third idea. The Lord is my. Personal pronoun, my, denoting personal possession. He says, listen to this, I have claimed this God who exists as mine. I made a personal commitment to Him at a time and place in my life. I have acknowledged Him as my God. He's my God. And there's a vast difference between a God and my God. Women can stand around a baby and exclaim, look what a beautiful baby. A woman comes up and talks about my baby. There's a vast difference between a baby and my baby. There's a vast difference between a wife and my wife. There's a vast difference between a God and my God. And here is the exciting thing about my religion, my Christianity, that it becomes personal and vital. We've made a personal commitment to God. And this is where religion becomes exciting. At a time and place, we say, I claim Him as mine. I claim His faith. I claim His promise. I claim His word. I claim His church. This God is mine because of my commitment to Him. And he moves to the fourth idea. The Lord is, He exists, He's real. The Lord is my, I have committed to Him in a personal way, but then the Lord is my shepherd. What a tremendous concept. Jesus did not call Himself the great teacher, although He was. He did not call Himself the minister, to his followers, although he ministered to them and said, He that would be greatest, let him be servant of all. He called himself the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd, he said. My sheep hear my voice. Let me pause to interject a little story I read from Clarence McCartney told about this little girl, this girl who grew up with her father in the highlands of Scotland. Those of us who have been world travelers have been to the highlands of Scotland. This little girl loved to go out with her father as he would call the sheep, and he'd call them, and they recognized his voice, and they would come. She drifted away from, her, from the faith of her father, and she drifted away from her faith in God, went off to the city. One day he started to look for her. The story goes he searched in the cities and the byways, couldn't find her, one night he hit on an idea. He went down the, in the bright lights ways and the discotheques and he walked down the street, this man they thought was crazy and he was calling the sheep with that voice and out of a, an apartment came running this girl into the arms of her father. My sheep, hear my voice. The greatest Christian art portrays him as shepherd. And some of the greatest songs ever sung portray him as shepherd. 
Savior like a shepherd lead us is one of my favorite songs. Much we need thy tender care. I like the word pastor best. Some of you call me Brother Gerald. Frankly, I don't like that. Um, I'd rather have Gerald, but I like pastor best of all of those kind of terms that we attach to preachers because the word means shepherd. Jesus is saying to us, I'm coming to tell you how God feels about you. The, the psalmist said, the Lord is my, and when he added shepherd to it, said, I belong to him. Now watch this. He is mine and I am his. And because I am his and he's the God like a shepherd, he is bound to care for me, redeem me, and care for me like a shepherd. He cares for us like shepherds care for their sheep. I'm looking out over this crowd. I've had people tell me that you know, you can go to First Baptist Church and get lost in the crowd. I'm sure there are people watching on television tonight we don't even know. Occasionally I'll be going into the bank or on the street and somebody will tell me, Pastor, I was watching your, your television show, your television service last night, show two. <laughs> and there, there are people that tell me that, that they watch my Sunday school class on Sunday morning, but they never call in. I, we don't, they say, we, we don't need to... You know, let you, you know, uh, give you, some will call in and say, I'm watching and never even tell us their name. Sure is easy to get lost in the crowd. There are 248 million people in the United States of America, and there are 5.5 billion people in the world. I'm just one person on this earth. How can I count? And as we see our spacecrafts hurtling toward the moon, we are conscious that this earth is not the one earth in the universe. There are many planets hurtling around this one sun, and this one sun is but one of many universes. With my naked eye, I can see 5,000 suns. We call them stars. But with that 200-inch telescope out on the west coast, I can see Five, I can see a hundred, I can see one billion stars, <laughs> ministerly speaking. <laughs> and this is just one galaxy. There are a hundred billion similar galaxies. And here I am, one person, 248 million people in the United States, five million, five billion people on the earth, among many planets around one sun, among billions of suns in one universe, among billions of universes and galaxies in all of space, and over it all, now watch this, is God the creator, the maker and sustainer of all, and he knows me by name. And how many hair I have on my head, which is a lot more than some of you, and the revelation of God is, is that in this universe that has all of it, and he knows every star by name, and he knows me by name, and he, and he cares for me and provides for me, let that saturate your mind. For here is a faith on which you can stake your life. This is exciting, right? Until you're underwhelmed. Now, everything else in this psalm is a conclusion. 
Therefore he said, I shall not want for anything. If I am his and he is mine, if he is God and over all, if he cares for me like a shepherd cares for his sheep, then I shall never want. I shall not want for sustenance, he said, that which sustains me day by day. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Sheep need pastures to graze and water to drink. They need daily sustenance. I shall not want for daily bread. I have yet, the psalmist said, seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. Have you? Charles Allen said that after the Korean conflict, they had a lot of little children in these orphans, orphanages. They were restless and sleepless at night with nightmares and dreams and tortured with uh, all they had, had experienced as children, insecure. And he said one night they, they hit on this idea, a psychologist was called in and they hit on this idea. They not only gave them enough to fill their little stomachs for the day, for, the, for, for sleeping at night, but they put an extra piece of bread in each hand. And for the first time, they slept without waking because they not only had enough to eat, they had the assurance that they would always have enough to eat. I shall not want. Have you ever considered how God has been saving up and storing up to provide for our needs through billions of years and we were not even here? And so we pump oil out of the ground for heat and we dig up coal out of the ground for light and electricity. And where did all that come from? God put it there billions of years ago, if we understand it correctly, before we ever on the earth, because God was providing for us and has provided for us before the need ever arose. And he said, I shall not want for restoration. He restoreth my soul. He's talking about physical restoration and spiritual renewal. One of George Truitt's favorite stories is that his mother, who was the widow raising nine children, she would get bent and stooped and, and, and weary, and he'd see her leave for periods of time, go out in the woods. She'd come back straight and vigorous and, and, uh, and strengthened. So one day he decided he would follow her, and he watched her. She went out in this clearing in the woods, and she fell across a trunk of a tree and began to pray, Oh God, I'm so tired. Give me strength. Give me power. Make George a preacher. Then she'd straighten up and come back to the house with new light in her eyes, with new strength. And there is spiritual restoration. David said, I was cast out by the Spirit of God, and I cried for cleansing, and He restored me. And a letter came to a pastor that said, Somewhere along the way, I died. Life ceased for me. I feel like an orange that has been squeezed of all its juice, and nothing is left but the pulp. Some of us feel that way sometimes. And we come into a church, or we bow in prayer, or we go aside with some friend, and we open up the Word of God and we find from Him this restoration of our spirit. We ought not have to be revived, but we often are in need of it. 
I shall not want for leadership. So I stand at the crossroads of life, and I don't know the way to go. I'm confused. I'm like the young man who came forward this morning in the invitation. Often I'm like that, and I'm disturbed. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness, he said, for his name's sake. And that word righteousness is based on the Anglo-Saxon word, means right ways or right wise. What he's saying is that he leads me in the paths that are the right ways. They are right wise. This is what I want. I want to know that when I make this decision and I choose this way, it'll be the right way. And I have that assurance because he's my shepherd. And the Lord, he said, will always be my companion. I'll never want for companionship, even in the valley of the shadow of death. I uh, don't want to rehearse what I've said before. I need to remind us, however, from time to time that the valley of the shadow of death is is a reality for all of us at some time. Some of you have wanted to walk that valley this year. Alexander McLaren great preacher in Glasgow remembers the first time he got a job and he started to leave on Monday morning to go to his job for the first time had to walk his father said now at the end of the uh, week uh, Alex I want you to come home well he knew between his house and his job was this deep ravine he'd always heard about as a boy that was dangerous and full of you know those spooky things he said well dad when I get off work Friday I'll be so tired let me just come home on Saturday morning early he said no Alex when you get off Friday night I'll, I'll be so lonesome for you I want you to come home all right he said all week long, Alec worried about that black ravine <laughs> he was going to have to cross in the night. When Friday night came, he was more scared than ever, and he, he wrapped up his belongings, went out to the edge of the gulch, and began to whistle to get up his courage. And down in the inky blackness, he began to fear something. And then he heard footsteps on the ravine coming up the path, and he said he started to run but hesitated, for these footsteps were very familiar. This is what he said, quote, Up out of the darkness into the pale light as I walked came the head and the shoulders of the grandest man on earth. He was bound to have known I was scared, but he only said, Alec, I've come to, I have wanted to see you so badly that I came to meet you. So shoulder to shoulder, we went down into the valley. And I was not afraid of anything that walked. When Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone, 
I'm going to send another comforter. That dynamic word he used was a word that means I'm going to send somebody who will walk alongside of you. And if you can get the picture of two people meeting as they come down a road, meeting one another, and they come to a juncture, and one of these people turns and joins the other as he walks along the way that I was going over 35 miles per hour. But as the accused, I know that I was not going 46 miles per hour. And as the judge, and being the understanding man that I am, <laughs> I decided to throw it out of court at this time, but it better never happen again. <laughs> now, you know, there's some people that don't need any mercy because they've excused themselves. True story, after the early service, this guy came to me and he said, he, he used to be a, a, an instructor of the highway patrol. He said, that actually happened in a court in Oklahoma. He said, the judge got picked up for drunk driving and, and the justice of the peace for public intoxication. This guy was telling him, he said, and he said, so the judge was the judge. And he asked the justice's peace. He said, how do you please? I plead guilty. He said, okay, your fine is $25. Then he said to himself, I plead innocent. And he rapped on his desk and said, case closed. <laughs> so you got, you, got, you got some cases where folks just excuse them. Now listen to me. I want to make a point that I think is so important to make. And, and I need you to listen carefully. Something that Martin Luther said ages ago. He said, this man didn't dwell on his sin. He didn't say over and over, I am a terrible sinner. That would lead to despair. He took the quantum leap, he said, the leap of faith, and cried, Have mercy on me, the sinner. And he prayed a prayer that was only possible if you believe in God. Now watch this. For sin and mercy do not belong together. They conflict. They're like fire and water. Where there is sin, mercy does not belong. Only punishment belongs. So says the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so says every code and of criminal conduct and behavior. Only could you pray this prayer if you knew God revealed in Christ. Because the gospel comes along and tells us, yes, you have sinned, but God is merciful and is ready to forgive. And that's what Paul exulted about when he said, where sin increased, grace abounded more. For this man stood in a circle and it was him and God. And punishment and judgment was deserved. Only could he cry for mercy by understanding that this God who was there was a God who forgives. So we put it in a song like this. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that is greater. Grace that exceeds our sins and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. 
grace that is greater than all of our sin. Now what's going to happen in this moment of worship, this moment before God? It all depends on how much of God there is here. And if God is present, you are not conscious of anybody else but you and Him. And if God is present, you are profoundly aware of your sin. But if God is present, there is grace that enables you to leave forgiven and justified. To your house. Let's pray together. Our Father, in this moment before God, may our sin be revealed and the grace greater than it be discovered. For I ask in Jesus' name for His sake. There are three invitations. I'd like to invite you right now to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You're not a bad person, but you're not as good as God. And because you've missed the mark, you can't do anything about it for yourself. Your only hope is God's grace made available through His Son and your appropriation of that grace by faith. Reach out to Him today in faith and accept His free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For by grace are we saved through faith. Maybe you need to step out today to come and do what others have done. That is, recognize the importance of a church membership and a commitment to its mission and purpose. And you feel God leading you to this church. Or whatever God leads you to do this morning, my prayer is that when He calls your name, you will say yes. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.